What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Damp Valley coming at you with another incoherent rambling on the NBA's MVP race. Before we get started, please let me remind you, subscribe to us wherever you consume us. Hit that sub button on YouTube. Also, really help help us you know, break the algorithm or make the algorithm love us back. Like, comment, engage with us. So hopefully the videos get out there more. Your sub is appreciated. Sub on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitch, wherever you get your podcasts. If you've done all these things, cross-subscribe one, both on a podcast and on a YouTube platform. Tell people about us. Retweet our promos. Shout us out on Twitter. I really appreciate all the shout-outs we've been getting. I will retweet them, respond to them, um, but they are very much appreciated. Uh, you're the reason that Grant and I continue to pump out this content. It's a it's a really big passion project at this point that is no, nowhere near profitable in any sense of the word. And we enjoy interacting with you all and providing content. So help us continue to provide content by doing all those things. Also, join our Discord. The link to that is in the YouTube and podcast description. And finally, follow us on all the socials. The handles are in the YouTube and podcast description, or if you're watching, they're on your screen. Now, this MVP race, this is like going... I've been giving my ladder every other week. I do it for Bleacher Report, and so it feels like an instructive exercise. Like I said, I might stop doing it. Um, both here and for BR as soon as it becomes irrelevant. But we're a month and a half into the season, and I do think there's always some topsy-turviness in the NBA MVP race this early. Uh, this is more turbulent, though, than I sort of remember in recent years, where I think you could stretch it if you really wanted to. And when we're dipping into sort of the narrative case on top of sample, that there are like six or seven guys who have you told me they're going to win MVP or that they're your MVP right now, I'm not going to give you a lot of pushback on it. Now, I could be a little bit more generous and lenient than other people. So if we were to take the hardline stance, there's at least three candidates right now that I think even the most you know conservative, rigid people um, could agree on. And I would still stress that to at least you have to include at least one other name in there. And I don't know what to make sense of it. I, or how to make sense of it, excuse me. And when, I, when I'm giving my thoughts, when I'm writing about it, when I'm digging into the details, I think more than most, this is not a compliment, more than most, my MVP ladders and thoughts tend to be like the stream of conscious, um, maybe over-honest exercises. And the entire goal for me is to give you insight into not just the process, but the tug of war. And it's, I want to be honest and say, yeah, there's a huge jump. Like, I don't know why I didn't have, I, I admit it, I'd st- uh, Jason Tatum wasn't in my first top 10. Uh, he has firmly been in that ever since. The other reason, just like seeing these players jump, I think we've seen more bi-weekly jumps um, when you look at a Jason Tatum or when you look at a, a Steph Curry, even, or even falls, like a Donovan Mitchell, who was so high up to begin with. Uh, it's, it, it's it, like I said, it feels like there is more turbulence than there, than there normally is at this point in the season. And I also want to be honest about it. Um, not that, yeah, I, I read other people, listen to other people, but I try not to let them impact how I'm thinking. It's also a continuous struggle to be, well, how do you weight the supporting cast element? A lot of MVP is narrative driven. And it's like, you look at Nicole Jokic, it's like, well, the bench in Denver kind of sucks. Even though the supporting cast is okay, that's going to inflate his net rating swing. Um, ditto for Steph Curry, like the bench, it's gotten a lot better since they started moving Draymond Green to some of those second units. Um, how much credit do you give him for having a bad supporting cast? Isn't it more important that you uplift a team that's really good? Isn't that actually harder to do when you look at a J- what a Jason Tatum is doing? Um, then conversely, it's Luka in Dallas. Uh, how do you measure what has been a really bad supporting cast overall versus 
like, okay, how good are they supposed to be? I also think it becomes an issue of, well, could these teams actually be better? Like, what is, is Luka Doncic succeeding in spite of the way the Dallas Mavericks are being managed? And so those are all the questions that just swirl about. I do think team success matters, but I think what we really need to remember here is that player minutes on the floor are all they can control. Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Jason Tatum, those guys can't control what's happening when they're off the floor. And you're only going to play so many minutes per game. And I think in a case like Steph, like Shea, like Luca, their teams are losing games during the 10 to 15 to 18 minutes that they are not on the court right now. And so that has to be a factor too. So I'm trying to weight all of these, you know, influence, statistical influences, anecdotal influences, what I've, what I've seen. Um, we know I don't watch any basketball around these parts. I've never watched an NBA game. Um, so I'm just making that shit up as I go along. But like in terms of also availability, when we're this early in the season, you know what? Like if you haven't played a ton and you're like not even in the top 90 of minutes played, I don't really know how to make a case for you over a lot of these names. And so with all that, like I told you this was going to be a ramble because this has been one of the hardest early season. I've been doing the MVP ladders for Bleacher Report for a while now. uh, And this is the hardest, like I said, that I can remember. And so I'm going to throw up the actual ladder on the screen for people who like to look at and see um, the player pictures there. We'll begin with, I call them my honorable mentions. And that's the, you know, the guys who are, you know, 10 through six right here. Cause your MVP out really only goes five deep. Um, and this is, I just want to, if the season ended today, this is what my ballot would look like. We're talking about this video is going live on Tuesday, November 29th. I'm happy this season's not ending today. Cause I really want to make sense of all this, but, but damn, I have De'Aaron Fox at 10. This is coming off a, I I did this before the Kings um, lost to the Suns and Fox didn't have the best game. But I do think it's time he received peripheral MVP love for headlining one of the league's top six offenses. And for now, one of the Western Conferences, just six best teams, bar none. Um, I don't know that, you know, he's gotten enough credit for the way that he's changed his game. Um, he's been, his crunch time splits have been mostly out of this world this season. He is averaging just, I mean, 25 and six while converting 59% of his twos and over 38% of his threes. That's just bonkers. So he's at number 10 for me. I still have Donovan Mitchell at number nine. Um, predictably Darius Garland's return to the court and to form has lightened Mitchell's playmaking load. Um, but he's still, Mitchell's still scoring like, whoa, for the most part, while raining off the dribble threes. Uh, he's delivering a much better defensive effort overall as well. When you dig into some of the on-off numbers, the Cavs are better off without him on the court. That gets a little bit weird. I don't know that he's going to stay in the top 10 much longer, just by virtue of how deep the Cavs are at the top with Evan Mobley and a Jared Allen. And like I said, Darius Garland feels like he might have, you know, usurped Mitchell's maybe their, their best player in the moment. Mitchell's had the better season overall. He's also been more available. Something to monitor there. I could see him falling off. Um, and I have John Morant at number eight. Uh, he had me worried when he missed just one game with a sore left ankle. I was all over the Grizzlies bringing it back too soon. Apparently not. His three-point and free-throw clips are still... They, they still dipped from where they were through the first part of the season. Um, but he remains just like this every-level offensive force who enables Memphis to, to just absolutely roll. And it's, oh, Desmond Bain isn't here. We don't have him. Um, that's no problem. Like Jaron Jackson Jr. didn't have the smoothest return. Oh, that that's no problem. Uh, John Morant could be a lot better on defense, which is why I have him at eight um, behind some of the names to come. But this dude is just, he's a 
he's an offensive monster and just an absolute joy to watch. Devin Booker is at number seven. He was at number seven last time as well. This is the territory for me, by the way. We're in the top seven um, where it gets really difficult. Uh, the Suns haven't had Chris Paul or Cam Johnson. Jay Crowder never joined the team. They're still somehow first in the West with a top seven offense and top seven defense. What the hell? How are we not talking about this? Inspired performances from Mikael Bridges and, and more recently DeAndre Ayton have helped. But Booker's imprint is all over this regular season machine. Um, he's playing the best basketball of his career, just dropped 40-plus against the Kings. His efficiency from beyond the arc has tumbled a little bit um, over the past couple weeks, but it's intact pretty much everywhere else. And Phoenix is averaging what would be the equivalent of like a top-five offense whenever Devin Booker is double-teamed. And so like his decision-making is really on point. I also think when you go back and look at his passing, the quality of his passes haven't changed, but the Suns entering Wednesday we're shooting 49.8% on his assist opportunities. That's 40th out of the top 50 players in uh, potential assists per game. So Devin Booker does rank in the top 50 of potential assists per game, but his teammates have one of the lowest conversion rates on those actual potential assists. That, to me, it could be an issue of shot quality. What time are they getting this pass in the shot clock? But going back and watching, I just don't think it's there. I feel like the Suns have actually left Devin Booker assists on the table to the point where his numbers could be even gaudier than we see right now. Number six, Nikola Jokic. Flat out, I know he's not going to win the award this year. Voter fatigue is a thing, um, but I do think he belongs here. You could make a case for him to be even higher. Um, the, his scoring dip overall for this season... I think has to factor in. He did apparently hear that um, because he came back after spending time in health and safety protocols, dropped 31 and 39 in his first, first two games back. Um, I think it's become trending to cite his league best net rating swing, uh, but the Nuggets bench is doing their damnedest to suck enough to prop that up. It's more instructive to note to me that Denver is hammering opponents by 14.8 points per 100 positions, possessions when he plays. That is the largest mark for any team like on this list with their star player on the court. No one I name after this, their team is not going to have a higher net rating with him on the floor. How much credit Jokic deserves for the defense success during these minutes is debatable. I land on some, but not all. He probably gets too much from many, yet not enough from others. It's weird. Slotting Jokic higher again, it's possible if you believe his overall scoring downtick exists by design, this attempt to adequately arm the Nuggets and preserve himself um, for life in the playoffs. But... I just, I don't know that I'm quite ready to put him in the top five. I will say that uh, who does come in at fifth, it feels like he's on a little bit of shaky ground. Maybe I'm wrong here. I have Giannis at five. I had him at one in the first MVP ladder I did like over a month ago at this point. And in the past two since he has dropped, I don't expect this. It's one, it's wild that putting you fifth on an MVP ballot is considered an insult, but I get it. Um, as noted last time, though, I think Giannis's stay outside the top two is temporary. Uh, that sentiment, it hasn't shifted at all. The field in front of Giannis for the time being just have. I know Redditors with offensive or the indiscernible usernames will claim I'm digging him too much for his struggles at the foul line, uh, 60% on the season, and just on his looks away from the rim. Uh, that's just what happens at this level. Atentacupo is a two-time MVP and has set a certain standard for himself to which he must be held. The absence of Chris Middleton and the time missed by Drew Holiday, it doesn't change this calculus for me. Others on this list are lip lifting up more problematic supporting cast. They don't have a Brooke Lopez flirting with all defense or defensive player of the year honors playing next to them. Uh, and while and they don't have Javon Carter playing out of his mind. 
And while the Bucks' offense has perked up in recent weeks, it still ranks 15th overall and hasn't fared, fared nearly well enough in transition. That's not all on Giannis. His minutes represent an improvement over the offense's norm, but it's not by these demonstrative degrees. Giannis has been far more bankable on the other end, where he once again probably belongs in the DPOI conversation. I know this is all going to sound like I'm saying Giannis is failing the Bucks. He's not. Finishing fifth on a midseason MVP ballot is idealistic for most. And Giannis's overall numbers, he's at about 31 points, five assists, 74% shooting at the rim. They're gaga still. He is also, since we last did this exercise, so two weeks ago, he's quietly cans 57.9% of his mid-range jumpers, 11 of 19 on those looks. That's a good harbinger. When Giannis inevitably improves his marks inside the paint and at the foul line and or from deep, like two of those areas, I think this becomes a different discussion. Ditto for when he also no longer barely ranks inside the top uh, 90 of minutes played right now, which was also a factor in this. Again, maybe splitting hairs, but just the, the efficiency downtick, especially inside the arc, yet away from the rim, coupled with just the playing time so far, this is, I don't find fifth to be an insult. Number four, though, I think this is going to rankle some people. Shea Gilgis Alexander of the Oklahoma City Thunder. I don't care about their record. Uh, they did lose to the Pelicans after I went through this exercise initially. Um, I just, look, it, what's happened over the past couple of weeks, we've seen SGA's outside efficiency kind of trail off. Um, he seems like a half step less ubiquitous on the defensive end. That's the, the extent of a decline. And it's not even a decline. His numbers this season are brain bending 31 points, six assists, 1.7 steals and 1.3 blocks, 54% shooting on twos and 35.7% shooting on threes and 92.2% shooting from the foul line on career high volume at that charity stripe. These numbers, let's put this into context. There's only one other player in NBA history for an entire season who has averaged at least 30 points, six assists, one steal, and one block on better than 60% true shooting. That was LeBron James, and it was last year, shockingly. I wouldn't have predicted that it was last season. So, yeah, SGA is having an iconic season right now. I would ignore any, and I did ignore any impulse that wants to suggest SGA's production is empty or the byproduct of a role he doesn't deserve elsewhere. I didn't have to ignore those impulses, I guess, because I didn't have them. That's more advice for other people. Uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder have still won the minutes that he's played this season, and they're posting a better offensive rating with Shea on the court than the Bucks notch with Giannis. You can call that cherry-picking. Milwaukee has yet to get Chris Middleton back, like I said. Drew Holiday missed those handful of games with a sprained ankle. But the Thunder don't even have a clear second-best player. Is it on like on a night-type basis? It could be Lou Dort. I would say it's probably been Josh Giddy less than you want it to be. It could be Jeremiah Robinson Earl at points. It could be Alexei Pokashevsky. Um, Gilgis Alexander's surrounding uncertainty isn't any less of a barrier just because Oklahoma City operates on a bigger picture timeline against non-championship expectations. Perhaps the Thunder will start losing enough for him to fade outside the top five. Uh, again, it's going to come a point where if they're going to continue to tumble below 500, he probably just won't play enough for this to matter. Their two and five record since the last MVP ladder isn't great. It's also not inundated with losses that scream frauds. Yeah, the letdown against the Rockets, okay, but they play the Grizzlies tough, almost beat the Pelicans. Like, those are teams that you could lose to. Uh, regardless, SGA's body of work is enough to float a top four finish for now, especially when you consider the all-everything nature of his role. There have been over 325 players this year who are averaging at least 10 minutes across at least 10 appearances. Only Luca 
has seen a larger share of his shots go unassisted. Oh, by the way, according to Unpredictable, SGA also leads the league in clutch win probability added. He has been a top 10 player to me this season. And I think it's it could be arguable, but if you're outside the top 15, we need to start having real discussions. Uh, it's not egregious to put him here just because of the Thunder's record. Maybe it becomes that way if he's available less as the Thunder start to, to lose more insofar as that happens. But for now, he can absolutely be this high. And look, he is this high. I have Jason Tatum at number three, which is actually a spot lower than he was last time. I had him at number two. Uh, steady is his stock. He's not... You know, he drops the one spot, not because of anything that he's done. This is more to do with the names that are to follow. Uh, his three-point clip over the past couple weeks has ducked below 31%, but he offsets that dip with stellar shooting inside the arc and career-best free-throw volume. He's just doing, he's become such a, a much improved driver. His defense has also been instrumental to the Boston Celtics inching back up the stopping power hierarchy. Uh, they're 13th in defense over the past two weeks, which is, you know, they were in the bottom 10 for a while. This is all despite they're still not forcing turnovers, but he does a lot of work on the defensive end. He's also averaging over the past two weeks, 6.8 assists per game. That is monstrous. The passing leap is real. Go watch his passes. It's just, there's so much less obvious the way that he has tightened his handle and his off the dribble decision-making overall. He's the real deal. The Celtics have lost just once since the last MVP ladder, and they have the league's best offense and net rating. Um, Tatum props up that dominance without needing to monopolize possessions as a playmaker or scorer. His superstardom remains more scalable than most, and it allows Boston to manage dependence on any one functional feature. Never in doubt wins, by the way, like those over the Hawks and the Kings recently, also permit them to keep his minutes in check, which could repress some of his numbers during certain games. This is not to say that Tatum isn't wired to carry the whole show. He is. He has been. He's clearing 30 points per game, over 4.5 assists, with a bonkers 62.5 true shooting percentage. Maybe he doesn't have the singular lifeline juice to leapfrog one or both of the names that we're about to discuss when we're going longer term, but for perhaps the league's most complete player on its potentially best team, top five appearances on this ladder feel like his floor. Number two, Steph Curry. Number five last time, and that was, he went from number seven, I believe, to number five when he did that. Um, so, you know, that's not, uh, I mean, that's a that's a pretty big deal. Steph finished atop the early season MVP ballots of ESPN, Zach Lowe, and Kevin Pelton on uh, the recent episode of The Low Post. I don't even really have like a great argument against that. Uh, Curry's numbers are reality warping. He's averaging 31.4 points and 7.1 assists per game while shooting almost 63% on twos and over 44% on his 11.7 three-point attempts per game. Literally, actually, what the fuck? Using the Golden State Warriors record against him, to me, never made sense. I laid out why just with the Shea Gilgis-Alexander case. It makes even less sense now. Golden State's still hovering around 500 and play-in territory, but they have a top-six offense and are 5-2 and two since the last MVP ladder. This uptick is probably even skewed in the wrong direction thanks to that no-hands-on-deck loss to the Pelicans last week. The Warriors have cobbled together more interesting bench units to help keep themselves afloat. Playing Draymond, like I said before, in some of those lineups without Steph has really helped a ton. But Curry remains the driving force of everything. He now owns the league's second-largest net rating swing behind only Jokic, and he ranks first in overall plus-minus. 
the on-off splits aren't solely a matter of Curry benefiting from a crappy bench. Again, the Warriors are finding solutions, it seems, outside the starting unit. The degree to which Curry warps defenses is just beyond comprehension. He opens up the floor for everyone, even when he doesn't have the ball, and even when he's not moving. Golden State's effective field goal percentage climbs by 12 points with him in the game. The second biggest uptick in the league and the highest by a mile among all other nine names to appear on this list. Teammates are also shooting 58.2% on his assist opportunities. Another best mark on this list that oozes awesomeness, whether you're thinking, oh, well, his supporting cast sucks, they're still shooting 58.2% off his assist opportunities. Or you could say, oh, they're great. They're still shooting 58.2% on his assist opportunities. That's not a mark that they would sustain without him. Awarding Curry the top spot to me is fine. I'd like to see the Warriors' wins toughen up a bit first. Victories over the Jazz and the Timberwolves are a good start. Uh, beating the Knicks, barely beating the Rockets, and then beating the starless Los Angeles Clippers, that rang, that just rings a little hollow to me. It still wouldn't surprise me if Steph is number one next time or five minutes from now. He has a real, if not likely, shot to become just the third player to win the MVP award after his 35th birthday. Michael Jordan and Carl Malone are the only other players to have done that. Uh, finally, Lucas one maintains the top spot. And I beg you, if you've made it this far, at least listen to why the Mavs, they kind of suck. This is just squaring away. Doncic's place in the argument is getting tougher by the week for me. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks aren't obliterating opponents when he's on the floor, but they are comfortably winning those minutes. That feels like a minor miracle when looking at the circumstances under which he plays. Figuring out how to beef up MVP stocks because of spotty supporting cast, like I mentioned, is really, really hard for me. Dallas is making it too easy, though. It's not just that the Mavs have obviously built an imperfect roster. It's how they manage it. Electing not to add another ball handler over the offseason after losing their second best player has led them into the arms of the previously unsigned Kemba Walker. Christian, Wood, Christian Wood's defensive lapses are presumably costing him playing time, but head coach Jason Kidd is totally cool with giving benefit of the doubt to the bricklaying exploits from Tim Hardaway Jr. and Reggie Bullock. Dallas's ceiling with this exact roster makeup, it, it, it remains to be seen, but it's higher than 11th place in the Western Conference, and anyone attributing the Mavs' recent plunge to Doncic needs their own reality check. Whether you think he's capable of playing a different, less ball-dominant role it's irrelevant. Dallas isn't even giving him the chance to try. Riding him into the ground is still their most efficient form of hope, and he's killing it. Somehow, some way, he continues to hit over 60% of his twos and brutalize matchups in the post while leading the league in scoring. He has also drilled 35.9% of his three-point attempts since the last MVP ladder, and most of those attempts are just these unassisted stepbacks because that's the nature of his role right now. Equally important, there's been this weird internet groundswell calling for Doncic to involve his teammates more. He is third in potential assists per game. His teammates are shooting 50.2% on his assist opportunities. Again, among the top 50 players in potential assists per game, that's the 37th highest mark. So it's low. And yet he's still elevating the play of his teammates. Non-Doncic players shoot 45.5% overall this year. They're shooting 50.2% when Doncic is setting them up. That's a big deal. There's a discussion to be had about the shot quality of those looks and then the late, croc, late clock grenades, but the overarching point here stands. Doncic is not in any way, shape, 
or form the problem in Dallas. And though his first place finish is not without vulnerability, because I really do believe that Steph Curry is coming, it is for now a worthwhile and necessary nod to his salvaging an organization that's done little to nothing in service of itself or Doncic himself. That'll do it for this MVP incoherent rambling sermon soapbox thingy, whatever you want to call it. Please let me know who your MVP is, what you think of the latter. Hit the comments on YouTube, at me on Twitter, at Danfa Valley. Remember to subscribe if you haven't done so already to YouTube, Spotify, Apple, on as many platforms as possible. Word of mouth recommendations mean a lot and they go a long way. Maybe retweet our promos on Twitter, shout us out, follow us on all the socials. The links to that are in the podcast and YouTube descriptions. Until next time, and as always, leave a shout out to the one, the only, the real MVP in our hearts, Frank Nielakina.